Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you today. Today in the program, I have a second part to the Catholic Mythbusters uh, presentation where I'm going to dig into some of the false understandings that uh, folks have about the Catholic faith and, and then how to present it, but not just how to present it in a way that's apologetic, but also in a way that helps us go deeper into it. Before then, however, I'm going to pick up where I left off uh, in the first part of yesterday's program, reflecting a bit more on the gift of silence and how critical it is in our life of faith. Back in a minute. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out, drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. Hey, welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. It's great to be with you. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you and I praise you for the gift of another day. Lord, you watch over us, and for that we praise you. You draw close to us, and for that we worship you. You enter into those dark places of our lives. And for this, we honor you. You do not stay distant in the face of our brokenness, our wounds, and our shame, for we betray you. And for this, we are so sorry. And we ask for a fresh start and a new beginning. And for your mercy, we praise you forever. Lord, I ask that you give us grace today for the challenges of right now. I know some who are listening are, are a bit overwhelmed by what it is they're experiencing. And Lord, I, I do ask as well that you would give us the grace to allow you to take us deeper, deeper into ourselves to encounter you in a fresh and new way. We love you, Jesus. And we want to love you more. And we make this prayer in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, some of you know that for the last, I spent about five days in Boston to be with my dad. And uh, he is in hospice at home. And during the course of the time that I was with him, he was slowly diminishing. And, and it, it, it was exhausting providing uh, care for him in the hours where he would get up and then he would have a bit of energy to engage in conversation. He would have certain basic human needs, eating and drinking and other things, that I would be attentive to him and then he would uh, sort of fade and then sleep. So to be then present to him. And then maybe to try to get stuff done, and then all of a sudden something would disturb his sleep, his his rest, and so to be attentive to that, and then family members coming by, it's it's like 
at a distance, at a safe distance of hearing about things, it's something that I looked at with, I thought, understanding. But when I actually lived it out just for those five days, I, well, I just came to a whole new appreciation, a whole new understanding, a whole new uh, um, sense of, uh, under, you know, understanding, really, to, to uh, insight into what it was and what it took and what it takes to care for someone who is in their dying stages of life. And um, one of the most obvious, one of really the most obvious things that showed up was the radical importance of faith in God. The, the, like this is the fundamental way in which a vibrant and vital relationship with God could make all the difference. And when I, when I say make all the difference, I, I don't only mean like to find the, the inner strength to serve in the face of a situation that involves tremendous patience and kindness and attentiveness. I, I, yes, that too. Yes, that too. But I, I mean at another level, just the idea that my dad is dying and what does that mean? What does it mean that he is going to, um, his, his spirit will leave his body? He will stop breathing. His body will be put into the ground. We'll have a funeral. And it, it's one of those situations where uh, St. Paul says, you know, if we don't have faith in Jesus Christ risen from the dead, then we are the most pitiable of people. Because in the words of Pope Benedict XVI, it's our encounter with the living Lord Jesus, the living glorified Lord Jesus, who was born among us, lived a life, underwent his passion, suffered death, descended into, into, into hell, and then rose again on the third day, triumphant over all suffering and death itself. And that he underwent that in my place, on my behalf, and for my sake. So that I would be able to, even now, share in the victory over death that Christ has won, that his spirit lives in me, so that when I look at my own death, and yes, the death of my loved ones, those most near and dear to me, that I'm not afraid. I, I can be sad, I can say that it's bittersweet, but I'm not afraid. And I can even say, that I'm excited for my dad to be able to pass through the door of death, not end in the tomb and disintegrate to nothingness. No, but to pass through the door of death in order 
to come before the face of God. That that for me is something that I I bring to the table. It's something that is on my face in, in my interactions, not only with him, but with, with others. And this is where your living faith makes all the difference. Because if you have other family members who struggle to let that belief go from the head into the core of their being, then death is a threat. Death is the ultimate threat. Death is an end. And death is hopeless. Death is despair. Death is not to be talked about. Death is to be completely avoided and uh, we must do everything we can to marshal. And, and, and if we bring God in it at all, it, it, it's for a last-minute Hail Mary, or to the football analogy, <laughs> or through praying a Hail Mary, get a miraculous supernatural intervention. God, please rescue my dad from death by not having him die, rather than rescue my dad from death freely, completely, and forever by accompanying him with your strength, by walking with us as we allow, permit, and celebrate with great gratitude that our father's going home to God. And this this brings me back to the theme that I was touching upon yesterday. And um, next week, I'm going to start unfolding some of the, the key themes that really came alive for me uh, this summer through, and especially through my period of fasting, which was fasting itself. I have, again, I think at least three parts that I want to share with you about the reality of fasting as well as a sort of fuller exposition on uh, the nature of silence. And it, it it's because it, it had dawned on me that so many young people who are uh, who are nuns, right? N-O-N-E-S. They have no religious affiliation. And now that subset of the nuns who are done, they're done with organized religion, and often that just simply means Christianity. They're done because, well, honestly, because of the way it's been poured over them and poured into them often through the internet. Yes, there's family stuff. Yes, there's family history and maybe dead churches and maybe offensive uh, churches that have done things historically or personally to them or their families or their or their uh, their background, that their their ancestry. And so it. The wound that is there provides a blockage and makes it uh, practically impossible for them uh, in their own estimation to consider Christ and the Catholic Church. But the new way in which I've come to see that the devil in his cleverness, utter cleverness, has used smartphone uh, smartphones and screens and internet-connected devices to diminish the human capacity for silence, to diminish the human capacity to pay attention. And it's that, that that's the primary path to encountering the presence of God. I'm like, no wonder, 
a whole new way. No wonder young people struggle with belief in God because they've been barred entry to the natural formation, let alone the supernatural formation, of a contemplative capacity to be still and to wonder before creation, before beautiful objects, people, situations, events, and to allow a breaking in and a breaking open of one's awareness to allow themselves to be grasped by something that is so beautiful and true and good that it draws themselves out of themselves to be influenced and and even transformed by the beauty they behold. That's a natural process. I'm not talking about adoration. I'm not talking about something that's connected to the gift of faith. I'm talking about the natural capacity to wonder and silence and be still and to allow awe to emerge in the face of the world which God has created and whose footprints are everywhere. And because we've had such a shunted, diminished, and devalued concept of silence and of stillness, the devil is putting a huge roadblock in front of young people's opportunities to go within and there to encounter Jesus Christ in his spirit and to be shown the face of the Father, to be led to the Father. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. And it's, it's again, it's something that I've found so striking and just coming to realize that I, I still need to ponder it further. So something else you can do for me today, um, when you hear this program, I'm actually going to be on an airplane with three of my uh, kids, that are starting as freshmen at Franciscan University. There's a longer story to tell around that, but please pray. Pray for us. We're headed off to orientation. I'll be there until Sunday. Um, I do have for you programs that will air on Thursday and Friday, and so uh, I hope you'll enjoy those. I chose programs that I think would be very fitting for this time of year to help you to continue to be encouraged in your own life of faith, And then coming back on Sunday, I'm going to have more than enough stories to share. Hope to God, praise be to God, um, after connecting with a number of wonderful folks out in Franciscan University. So just say a prayer that God will open doors for me to be able to meet and connect again with um, some longtime colleagues, friends, and uh, others. So just pray. Pray that God will open doors for me in, in that regard and that my, uh, my kids will be blessed, right? I'm praying that they'll be guided, protected, and provided for at the university. Uh, and that's why, as a, as a father, I'm allowing them to, to do this in, in a way that's a little bit out of step with uh, what Carrie and I had planned. Oh, and say a prayer for Carrie. She's sad. She's sad to see her house emptying out. We've had a beautiful experience this summer of eight of our kids at home. And now uh, the, the ninth and being in Boston with my family, uh, that there, that uh, uh, she's gone from eight in the home to having the five oldest um, head off to college uh, or head back to college. And 
that there's a there's a sense of there's a, a like a sea change, a big shift happening in in her heart and her life, and feeling like there's a big uh, like a, a, her life has turned uh, turned a corner in terms of what um, what age and stage she is at, and it, and it came too quickly, it came uh, unexpectedly again, and and so it's just say a prayer for her, pray for her comfort uh, as a mother that uh, the Lord will be her comfort. Okay, thanks for that. All right, when we come back, we're going to dive into the second part of the Catholic Mythbusters talk, which I hope and pray that you'll enjoy. Okay, back in a minute with Sound Insight. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com. drtomcurran.com. Reason is another one of those resources that we're going to call upon as we attempt to address some of these myths. Reason, history, scripture, and I mentioned in an underlying way, hermeneutics. Yes, okay, very good. So for communion. Okay, so Jesus celebrated a, um, a Passover meal, and he made it the new covenant. So he took the old covenant associated with the Passover, and he said, now this is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, the Lamb of God. So sharing in the, what, what is the bread and the wine is sharing in the body and blood of Jesus. So Jesus takes the body and blood, and what does he say? Take this, all of you need it. This is my body. This is my blood. So he refers, now here's the question. Did he mean it literally, or did he mean it symbolically? Okay, so this is the question. So we have all these resources. We can look in the scriptures in John chapter 6, especially for Corinthians 11. There are lots of passages in the scripture that recount the Last Supper in Mark 20, uh, Matthew 26, Mark 13, etc., etc. Okay, great. Now, the question, uh, Luke 22. So let's go on, and then let's say, um, we Catholics think he means it literally, and we have many Protestant traditions that think it's symbolic, that it's only a symbolic receiving of bread and wine, and we remember what Jesus did for us. Okay? We can be stuck with two different scriptural interpretations until we say, well, let's take a look at history, and let's see how the early church and down through the centuries, how did they interpret these passages? Did they interpret them in a Catholic way or in a symbolic way, in a Protestant way? And what we'll discover is, in fact, for several hundred years, there's not one reference to the concept that it's a symbolic interpretation. It's only identified as a literal interpretation. So much so that the Romans accused Christians of cannibalism because they're eating flesh and blood. So in other words, there is this no sense at all for hundreds and hundreds of years in any of these Christian writings, that there's a symbolic remembrance. There are tons of references to it being a direct, I'm receiving Jesus in his flesh and blood. When it first shows up as a symbolic theory, hey, you know what, this is actually a theory, it was condemned as a heresy. So 
Does that mean that we've proved that it's true? No, it shows that it's reasonable, right? There it is in the scriptures, and look at the history. Look at the weight of history and how history gives to us the history of the interpretations of these scriptures. We see the Catholic teaching shining forth. Okay, so I, she said, I have, a, I have a daughter who goes to an evangelical church, and when she goes to communion, she believes she's receiving the body and blood of Christ. And let's even extend that to say the pastor actually believes that by performing that ritual, he's actually transforming, or God is transforming the bread and wine of the elements into the body and blood of Jesus. Is that happening? Well, let's take a look at how the Catholic Church would approach that. I had said to this wonderful woman here that a ritual of, a ritual of remembrance that is established by God has the impact of making present in an effective way that which is remembered. So the question is going to be, what is the basis for saying that the Catholic Mass, the Catholic ritual of remembrance, has that claim, has that authority to make that kind of claim? And so what we would do is we'd look and see, oh, we see a whole history that goes back all the way to the time of Jesus. We would look to this evangelical church and we'd say, how long has your church been practicing this? 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, maybe 100 years. It's going to reach an end in such a time that they're going to say, well, the origin of our church community is 100 years old or whatever. And we're going to say, well, you're actually making a claim. You're, you're saying that there's an author authorizing or an authority to claim this that we're wondering about the basis of it. So what I think I would say to your uh, daughter is, you're absolutely wrong. No, I'm just kidding. You don't say that. You don't say that. That doesn't work. I'm just teasing. Um, um, what you'd say is that, well, we as a church believe that ours is because of this. And so that's why we would look to this as an authentic source of receiving the body and blood of Jesus. And so if you have a spiritual sense of communing with Jesus in that way, that's a beautiful thing. And you leave it at that. You celebrate what they believe to the extent that you can without accepting all that they're saying as true or accurate. Okay? That's right. So, okay, so now uh, she's saying, now, wait a minute. What about going to communion? What if we have a, a non-Catholic Christian who believes that at the Lord's Supper, there's actually uh, a transformation into the body and blood of Jesus. The Catholic Church locks them out and says, you can't come to communion. Well, it has to do with the meaning of the act of communion. What's the meaning of the act of communion? Repeat after me. Creed. Code. Cult. Okay, so the, uh, the last word you didn't really like. Cult means like a way of worship. A way of worship. Cultus. Uh, a way of worship. That those should receive communion. Those are welcome to come to communion if these three conditions apply. Number one, that they in fact believe what the church believes. Second, that they accept this path of authority this line of authority. And third, they share in the way of worship. So do all, the, the, all three of those levels of communion apply? And the answer would be, in the, in the case of non-Catholic Christians, no. 
They might believe a lot of what we believe, but they certainly don't believe all that Catholics believe. Uh, they may have some level of worship, right, that is in common. They might practice baptism, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that they share in the sacramental system the way that we do. And then this idea of authority, that there's this line of authority that goes back from the popes back to the apostles, and they accept that line of authority. And so they'd say, well, you know what? Coming to communion would be an act that's counter to what is real. We're not fully in communion. And this act is central to our life as a community of faith. And we feel the pain of not being fully unified the way that Christ intended. This is a sadness that we are not fully in communion. The Lord made us one, but we're fractured. And this is a sign of that brokenness. And so we welcome you to come and worship with us, but this act would be a lie because it's expressing something that's not real. We're not fully in communion. Priests have eyes that can see this spirit, Presbyterian and, and Lutheran. Father Mike, you know, don't you, right? Who's baptized, who's not, right? Mortal sin. No, I'm just teasing. Yes. That's right. So, okay, so let me say that again. So, okay, so this is great. So they're saying, um, St. Charles Borromeo warmly welcomes you, right? So um, do you live nearby? Yes. Can I come over tonight at 11? <laughs> You're not going to warmly welcome me? That's terrible. She said it was terrible that we wouldn't welcome her at communion. And I'm saying it's terrible you wouldn't welcome me in, my, in your home whenever I wanted under my terms. Thank you. Right. Presume misunderstanding. Yes. No, I'm serious. Um, because I came out of the Catholic Church, and now I go to Life Center. Yes. My husband goes here, and I can't even go to communion. So, and, and you know what? Do you feel the pain of that? No. I think it's stupid. <laughs> she doesn't feel the pain. She just thinks it's stupid. And you know, the, what's your name? Doris. 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 In fact, um, you may be this shining saint of God. Yeah, I doubt that. No, say yes. You may, in fact, be the shining saint of God that we'll only know when we got to heaven. But one of the great sadnesses is, one of the great brokennesses in the body of Christ is that Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, may they be one the way that you and I are one. But we're not. We're not. Why? Do you believe everything that I believe? You and I, do we believe on the most important things the same? I hope so. Jesus. Jesus, Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, alive in us. Worship the Father. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray the rosary. Pray the rosary? No. Oh, no. Whoa, wait a minute. Whoa. Oh, no, no. I don't want to pray the rosary. This is great. So do you see what we're doing? is that we're starting in the center, like a bullseye. We're starting in the center, and we're moving out. We're moving out. We're moving out. We're moving out. And what we're going to discover is, I hope and pray that those essential things, those central things, we have the same. But as we move out, can, can, you, can, you, appreciate, can you appreciate the concept that as we move out, 
and some of our beliefs are going to are going to diverge rather than converge. They're going to move in different directions. That some of those beliefs actually have feet. They actually will, will have some impact on how we live our lives of faith. Is that right? Okay. So when those beliefs diverge in terms of how we live our lives, then all of a sudden we're going to be on two sides of a fence. And we're going to say, you know what? My belief in Jesus is leading me to walk in this way. And your belief in Jesus is leading you to walk in that way. But do we still believe in Jesus? Yeah, but it shouldn't be that way. It should not. Thank you. It should not be that way. It shouldn't be that way. So who's wrong? wrong? Yeah. Okay, so let me say this. So are there any people that would identify themselves as Christians to you in your church that you would welcome them in and allow them to fully share in like the Lord's meal at, at your table. But what if I come in and I say, I am a Christian, but you start asking me, and I say, you know this idea of like actually giving your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior? Oh, you just judged me. You just said I'm not a Christian. How dare you? I'm hurt. I'm hurt. I'm in pain. I'm feeling left out and cut off. How dare you? So she's saying that there are people that she knows in certain... You want to point anybody out here? Come on. So, I'm sorry. I think there's something there in the eye. I don't know. Uh, sorry? It is sort of sad. Thank you. Thank you. What we're saying is, is that this Eucharistic celebration is so precious and essential to our life as a community. We want you to be there to the extent that you can. I shouldn't be welcome at your house at 11 at night. And those people that are identifying themselves as Christians differently than you define that, then you can say to them, according to my definition of being a Christian, you wouldn't be considered a Christian in my community. Even if I said, I have a different understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Can you appreciate that? Let me give you a rosary. <laughs>So doesn't understand confession, right? Why confess your sins to a priest, right? Why can't you just confess to Jesus, right? You know, that's, that's, that sounds like a crazy idea, right? Well, it's all about guilt. We want Catholics to... No, no. I have a 250-page book called Confession. Give it to your son. At the end, he'll be begging the Lord to go to confession rather than finish the book. So, uh, okay. All right, so, um, so confession. What's the concept? We fall short of God's glory. What do we need to do? Ask God to forgive us. Should we ask God to forgive us? Absolutely. I do it several times a day, including after my conversation with Doris. So <laughs> I have fallen into sin, I know, many times. So Doris, you've led me into sin. Now how do you feel? So, so it's your fault. You feel guilty? Father McDermott's back there. So. Okay, so the concept is what? Is that how does Jesus, who came to forgive sins, and this forgiveness of sins that's being set free is one of the great signs of God's kingdom come. We see Jesus preached and he taught and he also forgave sins. Well, one of the things we see in the Gospels is that Jesus, in John chapter 19, what does he do? He, no, John chapter 20. 
John chapter 20, verse 19 to 21. He appears on Easter Sunday behind the locked doors and he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, which is a sign of conferring a mission on the apostles. And he said, if you forgive man's sins, they are forgiven. Not women, just men. So, <laughs> and if you hold them bound, they are held bound. Okay. So we see there, and there's several other scriptures we could point to, but let's just focus on that one. Here's an, an, an event that John recorded of Jesus conferring upon them some power to forgive sins. Okay, so now let's take a look at the early church. Was there some ritual that involved the conferring of the forgiveness of sins? There was. You have these early penitentials, these early books that you have, and in them, what would happen is people during certain seasons, they would actually come up in front of the community and they would confess their worst sins in front of everybody. I think we should restore that <laughs> tonight. Doris. So, and they would not only confess their sins and then the priest would come and pray for forgiveness, they would go and kneel at the doors of the church for a specified period of time and ask for forgiveness from the community. Okay, who likes the idea of confession now, huh? And so we see over time this evolves, this practice evolves until the good Irish monks started to offer this forgiveness in one-on-one -on -one settings. And so that practice is what took hold in the Catholic Church over the course of the centuries, is confession as a sacrament occurring in a one-on-one -on -one encounter. And what the concept is, is that Jesus forgives sins. And Jesus knows us and knows the power and importance of a personal statement that says, I forgive you of your sins. And so Jesus continues to minister his forgiveness through the apostles and their successors. So you have the 12 apostles. Now when the 12 apostles died, what happened? Did the ministry of Christ that he conferred on them disappear? No, they conferred successors called ordination. They raised up other successors of the apostles called bishops that overseer in Greek. They oversaw certain elements of the church, but as the church grew, they didn't have enough help. So they had deacons around them to help with the administration of the goods, but in other communities that were in the area, they ordained priests who represented the bishop. And so there was this sense that a bishop had co-workers, priests in outlying communities, and deacons around him to help in the administration of the life. of This is just history. This is history. And so we see this coming down through the centuries. This is the life of the church. And that was one of the sacraments, those special privileged places of encountering Jesus that he established and the church continues to carry on. Okay? There's so much more I can say, and I did in 250 pages, but that's just a little bit. Yes, deacon. Let me say one other thing. Um, when I call the church as being anti-woman or diminishing the role of women. Um, I, I had a spiritual director, a priest, who uh, was uh, working with me in terms of developing my spiritual life. And um, 
he, he was working with me over the course of a, of a couple of years, and I, I came to him in one of these sessions, and, and a spiritual director is someone you kind of share, this is what's happening in my, my relationship with God and in my life and trying to grow in holiness. And, um, and, and I shared an insight with him, and he said, oh, thank God. And I said, well, did you, I said, why do you say that? And, he, and they said, did you know this about me? He said, I knew this about you two years ago. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And he said, because you would have heard it, but you wouldn't have understood it. You had to live through this. And it was only after living through this for these years that you came to have that space in you, that came to have that place in you where it was an insight that made sense. It emerged in you. I share that with you for two reasons. Personal history can be personal development. We grow. We grow in our understanding of things. And so I might be saying some things right now that you hear them and you're just like, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe someday it will, Doris. So, <laughs> However, personal history also functions in the opposite way. We have experiences that don't just allow us to grow and develop. We have experiences that diminish, that begin to narrow our capacity to appreciate what the church is actually teaching, Doris. <laughs> and so, poor Doris, she's like, how did I end up here? <laughs> and so I, I share that with you because you always have to be very respectful of people's experience. Tom, it's true. I have, we have to be respectful, caring of people's experience. Because you can bring the best argument and give the reasons and the scripture and the history and all of that, but people's experience just makes it impossible in that moment or unlikely in that moment to have a real impact. And I share that with regards to something like the question of, does the church raise up women or diminish women? And I can bring an answer that is a theological one or a historical one that tries to explain or expand. But so often, it's going to be received based on the personal experience of the person who's hearing it. So there'll be some women who are here who will say, I have been so affirmed and built up, and I've been encouraged to use them and share my gifts by Father McDermott and by wonderful priests that we have here at St. Charles Borromeo over the years and the decades. But there are going to be some that are here who will say, I don't know what you're talking about, but I have been put down. I have always been kept in roles that have been very small and unimportant. And so this is a great example of saying, instead of me giving like, here's what the theology is, because the theology is an easy one, and which is, no, women have incredible dignity in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the church. The church is considered feminine. Her foremost member and, and model and type is Mary, the Blessed Mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all that won't mean a thing, apart from the lived experience of the women we're talking to. So what I want to say is that the church, in her teaching, hasn't always taken enough flesh in her members. And that's a great sadness. 
Some of that is historical. Some of that's just the individuals we're talking about. And that's where the counter witness of members of the church or self-identifying Catholics are not always serving the presentation of what the church actually teaches. Baptizing infants. Why would we baptize infants, right? Because baptism is that action by which the new life that God wills for them, they become a new creation, right? And that act is an act that they should get to choose when they're older, right? That's the, that's the theology that why would you baptize an infant? Why would you give them that when that is so personal to them? that you'd want to wait until they're older, right? By the way, what am I trying to do? I'm not trying to do a straw man argument. I'm trying to find the strongest presentation of it I can. We shouldn't be afraid of the, 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 the best stated, most profoundly asked questions that put into question what we teach as Catholics. You know who was the first great, uh, the best example of that? St. Thomas Aquinas, the Summa Theologica. He begins not by presenting the church's teaching. He begins by presenting the objections. And his objections were often better stated and more profoundly stated than the people who actually had the objections. So when it comes to this one, why would we give to a newborn infant that gift of new life, which is so intimate and personal to them, why wouldn't we wait until they're older? And I'm like, you're right. Let's not give them a name. Yeah, make them wait until they get old enough to choose their own name. Come on. Right. Why give them an they're saddled with a name for their whole lives? Well, in fact, why give them existence at all? Let's see. Life was given to them as a gift apart from their choice. Why wouldn't new life be given to them as a gift apart from their choice? If I, as a father, want to give good gifts to my children, and I do, why wouldn't I want to give the best gift of all? The freedom that comes from the very Spirit of God dwelling in them, the recreation that Christ won for them. Why would I want to wait until they're teenagers? But you know what? The truth is this, that there is something that I can't give them, and that's the personal reception in the fullest dimension of the gift that I gave them. Did you hear that? In other words, uh, the church's teaching on um, salvation is that salvation is given, it's gifted, and it's received. Say that. It's given, it's gifted, and it's received. When was salvation given to the world? 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross. He gave a salvation to the world and to everyone who has ever lived. All of us. That's when salvation was given. Now the Catholics say, when is it gifted? We say it's gifted at baptism. Uh, 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 see, now I'm making the distinction. When is it fully received? Ah, it's received as we come to embrace. <laughs> For the record, that was not Doris. That was the heretic next to her. I mean, uh, that was the lovely lady two down next to her who has banned me from her home because she's not welcoming. Okay, so. Believe and be baptized. Okay, so. Yeah, okay. This is good. Your neighbors, that's good. I like that. 
Do you let her in at 11? Yeah. So. yeah. Anytime you want, right? Okay. So repent and believe. Right. Jesus said repent and believe. And Peter... Okay, okay, let's, let's go to Peter. Peter in Pentecost. He's now taken over, right? The Spirit comes on him and he goes out and he says, all of you, repent and believe. No, he didn't. He said, repent and be baptized. Oh. Okay, so, okay, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so now, how do babies believe, right? So, did you hear my argument? My argument was, we give many good things to our kids. Why wouldn't we give them that gift? of immersing them in the new life that Christ won for us in baptism. Now, you might say to us, I don't like that idea. They say, well, let's look at the scriptures. Well, the scriptures refer to individuals believing and are being baptized. But we also have individuals believing and their whole households get baptized. And it doesn't say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, oh, I remember the scriptures say, and their whole household, except the believers, except for those little babies who didn't believe. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, and their whole households, only including those, the asterisk, only including those who said, I believe. No, it doesn't say that. So wait a minute now. We might, well, does that include babies or not? Well, we can disagree on the interpretation. So where do we look? History. And what does history show? Does history show that babies were not allowed to be baptized? And at one point, the Catholic Church said, you know what? We want these people, like, in. And we want them giving early. Good donations. So let's baptize babies. There's like an extra, no. No, from the earliest centuries, what do we see? Babies are baptized. Babies are baptized. The concept of babies not being baptized takes a long time to enter into the life of a Christian community. It's like a very recent thing, just the last few hundred years. Do you find groups that say, babies, no baptism? So I just want, no, no. You, can, you can disagree with me, but I'm telling you, people who lived the first 1,500 years as Christians would not know what you're talking about. They wouldn't say, why are you leaving babies out? Babies were part of the family. So, if you gave me a gift for my birthday, November 6th, <laughs> but for you, I'll take it early. Okay. And you gave me, what's your name? Paula. Paula and Doris gave me gifts. And so I, I took in both of your gifts. And Doris's gift, I opened up. And I, oh, I love it. Keys to a new car. Thank you, Doris. <laughs> so sweet of you. And Paula, Paula's gift, I got it's beautifully wrapped, and I put it in the closet. Okay, let me ask you. Were both gifts given? Yes. Say yes. Doris is like, is this a trap? <laughs> where's this going? I don't like where this is going. Were both gifts given? Yes. Were both gifts received? No, yes. No, yes. Ah, oh, they were both received, but were both gifts having the full impact they were intended to have when the giver gave them? No. I received your gift, but because I didn't open it, I didn't fully receive it. Because it's not having the effect it was intended to have when you gave it to me, November 6th. So, that's like baptism. 
In baptism, we're given these gifts by God out of love. Like God gave us life out of love without our asking. Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago without our asking. Jesus had us be born into families that raised us in faith without our asking. And so he also can give us that gift of new life without our asking. Will it have the full effect it's intended to have before we fully receive it? No. That's where we have to come and make our own what has already been given 2,000 years ago and what was already gifted as a baby. Dear converts. <laughs> okay. Okay, so the Mass, I was saying, is a great act of thanksgiving to the Father, right? And so the act of thanksgiving, how is Jesus dying on the cross an act of thanks and praise to the Father? Is that your question? Or do you want to, is that okay? Well, if you want to refine it, let me know. Yes. Right, it's a horrible situation. Jesus dying on the cross is a horrible situation, right? It's, it's the worst thing that humanity ever did. Killed the innocent son of God, right? But God took the worst thing that humanity ever did and made it the greatest thing that he ever did. He used that act to set us free from sin and death and all the consequences that come from that. Separation from him forever. So we thank God for that act of Jesus uh, giving himself to the Father. But how is that precisely an act of thanksgiving? Because it's an act of complete self-giving in accordance with the will of the Father. And that's what we're called to do, even when that means the cross. Okay? Even when there are people in our lives, Doris, that are the cross. We just welcome Doris and people, and Paula and Doris. I, I love you guys. He rose again. He's not on the cross anymore. He's at the right hand of the Father. Hallelujah. Why do we have him on the crucifix? Because where does Jesus now live? No, 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 no. no. Where else does he live? See, in our hearts. Oh, thank you. In our hearts. Okay. And has the risen life of Christ fully conquered in us all that is sin and death? You never sin? Oh, I want to hang out around with you. You sin all the time. So she sins all the time. You, you're all done with sin. This is good. Okay. Do you go to the same church and your neighbors? Okay, someone's got theology wrong here. Okay, so let's figure this one out. So this was not planned, by the way. Okay, this is all live. This is all live. Okay. And you came. This is beautiful. So, and this will be my last question. And I'll, and I'll say this. Some of you didn't get a chance to answer your question, ask you a question. I'll stay as long as I need to. I gave this last Wednesday. I was there until 10 o'clock. I'll stay as long as I need to to answer your questions if your question hasn't been answered, okay? But let me answer that. Sorry, why is Jesus still on the crucifix? Because Jesus calls us to imitate him. Jesus calls us to be his disciples, his followers. And the path to the resurrection in my life is the path through the cross. And so when I'm experiencing things in my life, like people who are a cross, <laughs> I need to know that he understands. I need to know that he's with me in my tremendous suffering. And so I look to the cross to realize that he is not far from me in my time of suffering. So I look to the cross and I see he knows me. He sees me. I see myself there because he is in me. 
through the cross to the resurrection. Yes, all the things that you said are correct. That uh, He's saying that uh, the Bible, the book of Revelation mentions 666 and the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, by the way, Christ is going to come in about four years. So <laughs> that was a joke. Come on now, roll with me here. They're like, is he serious? Is he serious? No. No, so the book of Revelation, right, scriptural exegetes, they'll look at that, and when they try to understand, what does this 666 mean, uh, 666? Uh, is that meant to be literally taken that we should look for the Antichrist who's going to come, and we're going to try to identify who that one is by looking for the signs, or is that more of a historical reference looking for a way of helping the believers at that time recognize that that's actually Caesar Nero? And the answer is yes. Okay? So uh, that's part of the, the concept of that the church believes that the scriptures mean something at the time they're written. And so that's historically the case. But that doesn't mean that exhausts the meaning of that scripture as God will unfold it in history. And so um, what does it refer to? Who does it refer to? We don't know. But there will always be the spirit of the Antichrist, signs of Antichrist-like activity, and it's going to be up to us to discern what that is. And let me just, here's one little simple thing to, to hold on to. Six, 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 three sixes. Um, numbers have meaning, not just letters, but uh, not just in reference to words, but also in, in uh, number symbolism itself. So what's the number of perfection? It's seven, seven days of creation, right? And so seven is the number of perfection. And so what is the number of imperfection? Six. Why? Six looks like seven, but just falls short of it. Now, if you want to raise something to the highest degree, you say it three times. Holy, holy, holy is a way of saying the height of holiness. So 666 is a way of, oh no, 777 would be the number of God, the fullest fullness of perfection. 666 is the fullness of anti-perfection, the fullness of imperfection. So that which is the most completely imperfect is that which is most near to perfection. It looks like it, but because it looks so much like perfection, it's so much more dangerous than something like 111. And so the Antichrist is going to look like Christ and sound like Christ and do things like Christ. It's not going to be obvious who the Antichrist is. And so that's why we have to discern. So that's just another, for instance, another meaning of the biblical passage. Okay? We're going to, I'll say a prayer and then I'll be up here to take more questions from, except for Paula and Doris. So. <laughs> Let's just pray over them right now. Jesus, we got them. Let's surround them. Take out your rosaries. Hold them up. So, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the gift of your Son, Jesus, who is our one Lord and Savior. I thank you for the gift of your Spirit. And I thank you, Lord, for the gift of our Catholic faith and for our brothers and sisters who came here tonight. And I do ask a special blessing upon Doris and Paula. I do. Lord, just bless them. I just thank you for their good-hearted spirit, for their witness and their willingness to, to laugh. And Lord, I just ask that all of us here would be blessed with a special blessing tonight. Lord, help us to grow in our sense of confidence in the Catholic faith. Help us to uh, have a hunger to learn more and to be able to, to share it more fully and joyfully. Make us living witnesses, Jesus, to your faith in this world. And Father, we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all for coming out today.